Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider. This week we bring you another Money 2020 bumper episode. We've interviewed Matthias Kroner, formerly of Fedor, Stephen Ufford, CEO of Trulio, Giles Sutherland, MD of Carter Worldwide, Paul Riseborough from Metro Bank, and Tariq Hassan from Code4000. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Fintech Insider interviews from coming to you from Money 2020 uh, in Amsterdam. I'm Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by the one and only Matthias Krona, founder of Fedor, now a man who wears many hats. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Thank you, first of all, Simon, for having me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an in particular pleasure being here. Um, how am I doing? Great. Simply great. You have definitely had a storied career. So. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Fedor, uh, just remind everybody who Fedor are, because uh, you're kind of the, the, the original gangster, the OG of, uh, of Challenger Banks. Yeah, well, great. Yeah, exactly. Let's say it like that. Some people say that we've been the oldest fintech bank of the world, mm-hmm. uh, which I, uh, a phrase I in particular love because it's this fintech which is new and the oldest which is old and so on. So um, contradicting in itself a bit. No, um, we started back in tw- 2007. Actually, wow! We started with creating the idea of uh, forming something like a digital-based, community-centric, mm-hmm. customer-centric new way of banking. Um, why did we start that? Because we did have a look to what is happening in the retail environment uh, on the on from web 2.0 to social media to e-commerce i would say that's about the the, the, the place timing, we've been yeah. exactly the timing and the place we've been and and we thought listen this is receiving even those days uh 12 years ago uh so much positive feedback and people jump on it and and maybe not the majority those days however we thought this will first of all change the whole retail world this will change the consumer behavior yeah and by doing so, it will also affect sooner or later retail banking. I love that definition, uh, fintech bank, uh, because I think there's a there's a thing I hear a lot when people look at challenger banks and they go, "Oh, that's just the ING direct model. You know, it's just it's just low cost banking." But yeah. is there something different to you about a fintech bank than than just a direct digital yeah, only bank? Absolutely, absolutely, and it, 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 it's exactly the distinction you just made. It's it's. Um, it is that a that I even would speak in generations. You know, the the first bank I did set up was uh, called DAB Bank, Direktanlagebank, which was a direct bank, yep. so to say, um, a so direct distribution and channel. Um, but it was definitely not digital because then we would need to talk about what means digital, like end to end digital infrastructure, anytime, anywhere, micro twenty four seven, no paper, well, whatsoever, right? Uh, you can access data, you can uh, digest on this data information and so on. That was not the case. Of course it was tech-based, mm-hmm. right? Because as there would be not even a branch bank without technology. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, just using a laptop doesn't make your digital bank, you know? <laughs> so, and that's about it. A lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of bullshit bingo and buzzwording on, on, on currently, not currently, for quite a while around. But digital really means that you have this kind of super low cost, high speed end-to-end processes that can be even accessed uh, maybe via APIs in a mm-hmm. shared infrastructure. Um, having said this on the one side, of course we would then need to reflect even that what, what, what kind of uh, challenger banks are upcoming, whether they are really a fintech-ish digital bank or maybe just lipstick on the pig. You know? Yeah, and, and so 
How do you define the difference between the low-cost distribution players and, and the fintech players? Is it really about the, the customer service element? Is it about uh, how they've rethought process? Is it, what, what's the, the thing that you would say is the main differentiator? So the process itself is a very, uh, very crucial component to, to the definition, I would say. It is also that, um, uh, first of all, of course, starting at, the, at, at a very customer-centric problem statement. Uh, I think that, unbelievably still, this is a differentiator. Right? I feel like customer, service, <laughs> uh, customer centricity is one of those things people say as if, like, yeah, saying I, I it is enough. Yeah, 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 exactly. And yeah, we heard about it. Oh, obviously, Jeff Bezos mentioned that, so we need to say it. So, yeah. um, I, I thought, so customer centricity, having this problem statement, creating a process that is really digitally end to end and really end to end. You know, I let me quote one um, experience I once made on a presentation listening to, uh, to the member of an executive board of a non named bank. And, and incumbent, obviously, and, and he said, listen, we are so successful with our digital, um, actually, conversion and exercise, and even the customers like that. We have piles of account applications. We hardly can carry it. So find the mistake, you know? So, so of, we have, no, he literally said we had to buy baskets to carry it away. If I'm a true digital player, I don't need not, uh, no Baskets nothing. With exactly. Paper, yeah. Maybe I would need a USB stick to carry away the account applications, but definitely not a basket. It's crazy, isn't it? So um, let's go back to when you founded Feedall. So talk, tell me that story. Like, wh why did you think one day, you know what, we need a community-driven bank? We need what, what was that? So um, it, it was not that one day thinking, it was actually that we had with the first bank, we already had something like a community and, the, and this DAB bank back in the 90s. And, um, and this community was a very much focused brokerage community. Mm -hmm. So that means that was a home for traders to talk and speak about their trading, their experiences, maybe their failures, secret tips whatsoever. Yeah what you speak about when you are interested in stock trading and options yeah. trading and warrants whatsoever, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, actually, you speak about everything besides that you lost money, So, uh, which is uh, the inconvenient truth in this environment. Anyhow, um, and we picked that idea, actually, we picked up that idea again and said, listen, but we... Uh, you could speak about more about the whole topic of money, about maybe how to make money, how to, uh, what is a good insurance, not only brokerage topics. And we've been brave to do so because we realized that Web 2.0 was around suddenly and people have, were used to communicate about all kinds of topics in all kinds of online platforms. Uh, and that's why we said, okay, we, we make that to the nucleus, first of all. Second, we want to do it like that because we want to be customer-centric. Mm. And this kind of customer-centricity means talking to you and integrating you also includes that we integrate you in the, in the overall development of the whole bank, you know? Yeah. So that we said, okay, listen, guys, we want to focus on A, B, C, D. Would you agree on this? Um, and have in mind, and that's the third point then, have in mind that those days, actually 2007, 8, we've been really in the midst of the financial crisis. Yeah, okay? interesting so timing. we did see, yeah, that was super interesting timing and actually the best timing to set up a new concept ever. Why? Because once everything is okay, everybody's happy with his or her bank, no need for a new one. 
Okay, but that environment created such a useless satisfaction with the incumbent players like we've never seen it before. Absolutely. Right? Remember, we had this Occupy movement, we had yep. the 99% movement, yep. and everything, everybody was really kind of hating banks, you know, not only disliking banks. Net promoter score was minus 25, minus ah, 40. Yeah, in the good days. In the good so, days, yeah. So. So it, it really created the perfect storm. I still believe it's still around, you know, but somewhat not that visible anymore. But it created the perfect storm actually for set up something new, which is customer centric, because that is the only, you know, remember there was a very famous investment bank sitting on both sides of the table, actually betting against each other yeah. and earning no matter what is the outcome, you know, really fooling their customer base. Yeah. And that really, again, made people aware that the bank is not around to solve their problem, your customer problem, but you as a customer are around to solve the bank's problem. And this is exactly what we try to change. We see this so often where um, the idea of digital is the bank getting the customer to do uh, what the bank staff used to do. And so they give, they take that screen that the bank staff used to see or that yeah. process that the bank staff yeah, yeah. used to have to do and get the customers to do the work. Whereas actually, that's, that's not what a customer's no. problem is. The customer's problem isn't that they can't do the bank's job. The customer's problem is, how do I make it to the end of the month? It's, am I ever going to be able to afford a house? Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. very different problem. Exactly, and you start to become a part of the workbench and the process, and you should not be, you know? Neither mobile nor digital nor in the branch, you should be part of the value chain, you know? In no, this absolutely. sense, and not in this sense. Completely, right? and it's interesting that with a community, by understanding their problems, by understanding what they were talking about to each other, you were in a prime place to understand how to drive the roadmap and really use that to drive how you build the products. And, and if you look at fintechs now, this is, this is quite normal. Starling has one, Monzo has one, Free Trade, Plum. But I can count countless fintechs where that is now the normal thing. So I think you guys can, can take credit for, for, for pioneering something that now is, is considered normal. Kind of, kind of. Not initiating it, but inspiring, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Um, it, it has become normal. I, I guess I'm curious um, how you see the the fintech market now. You had a you had a panel uh, where you talked about financial data and open banking. Do you where do you see financial data and open banking at? You know, in Europe, PSD two has now been around for eighteen months. Plaid have been in the U.S. for you know two three years and are gaining some real traction and a significant valuation. They're on the way to the U.K. market. Uh, you know, uh, and they're going to come into Europe as well. Is open banking ever going to be a thing, or is it just going totally. to be? No, 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 no. Absolutely. Uh, to 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 preempt the question, <laughs> so to say. No, absolutely. I'm um, uh, a, a strong believer in this. Um, first of all, high level philosophically, I have to say, I believe in principle. I believe in open system instead of in closed systems. Mm -hmm. In principle, right? So no matter what we talk about, then it's, it's, I think at the end of the day that anything, that everything that is open is always superior to the rest. Um, why? Because, and this is why, surprise, surprise, this is why Fedor really was created in a very open way. Mm -hmm. um, and I can give you the real life examples and reasons for that because you know, of course, Fedor was a very small team in the beginning and there was a lot of buzz around and a lot of development. And, and we realized there's no way on earth that we cope with the whole development with proprietary solutions, proprietary team, mm -hmm. proprietary processes. You'd never be and able so, to afford it. No, never. So first of all, second, once you have a minimum understanding of financial services and maybe marketplaces and trading places and so on, you know that 
liquidity of those marketplaces is essential. So that also means not only if we would have had the chance to set that up on our own, who guarantees me that I create the marketplace with liquidity? You know? yeah. So this is also why an open marketplace, which allows to access a lot of, which allows liquidity to access, and by the way, by openness also allows to go if needed, yes. is always the superior solution. So out of this principle understanding, I'm always voting for openness, first of all. Second, I think open banking is uh, so fantastic because it will allow to um, cross traditional barriers that we have in between industries today uh, which are given by because it was like that for the last hundred years which is always the weakest of all good reasons so um, so but I, I strongly believe that by the way uh, by merging industry by meshing up industries uh, by by maybe taking advantages from different industries and create one solution to the customer uh, actually, we, we can create uh, superior superior services. I love that idea of cross industries. Uh, you, you don't hear that a lot. You hear a lot of people talking about, oh, well, we're going to aggregate your accounts and we're going to do things. But but when you start going into other industries, that's when things start to totally. get really interesting. See, aggregating the account, yeah, well, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I give it my boring face, really. Uh -huh. and, and and yeah, that's that's. That, that cannot be more than just a starting point. Yeah. Yeah, it simply cannot, shall not be more, if you want to be ambitious, shall not be more than just a starting point. Um, but we did like like three, four years, uh, no, four years, five years in the meantime with, with O2 Telefonica is actually that we created an account that also for them, white label, fully bank as a service, mm -hmm. right? Um, which also integrated actually uh, an interest rate payment in the in the form of data volume. Ah. Okay, so it's not euros or pounds or whatsoever, but, it but data. it's data volume. So the data itself you have on the account driven by your activity, first of all. So it's a kind of loyalty scheme slash interest rate in data. Third, uh, second, you can use that data for your telephone contract. That's the, the mashup. Wow. Okay. But also, third, it's getting totally new dimension because you could send or you can send uh, the data to your friend, actually. If you say, listen, you owe me 10 quid, I haven't, but I send yeah. you 500 megabyte, fine, better than nothing. Which for markets where data is the currency is, is hugely... And not only for markets, and if you if you define market also by uh, by audience and by customer group, yes, you're right. Yeah. Because let me say teenagers and so on. If if you would do this, yeah, yeah, but all cash is really difficult, and exactly. getting online is really difficult for Absolutely. those generations. It's a real challenge. Absolutely. So see, uh, so that is a the outcome of a creativity process, which allows you to think outside traditional barriers, which there is nobody sitting around saying you may not do this. Mm -hmm. uh, why? I don't know, but it feels odd. One of my um, favorite stories of the past week is uh, an, a team in a, uh, in a bank who created a, an office in a WeWork to go just do interesting things and work with new tech. And uh, they, uh, they kind of found themselves the first weekend, they saw dogs in the office and they were like, oh my goodness, um, what's the situation here? Like, who, who's the policy owner for dogs? So they went and spoke to the people that ran the office and said, what's your dog policy? And the guy went, um, you can bring your dog. And it was like, yeah, but do you have a policy? It's like, 
That's the it. policy is you can bring your dog. You know? it's like, <laughs> I the, hope they shot the dog and then discussed it. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, hopefully not. You know? yeah, yeah, let's 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 be, be nice. Actually, to we had the discussion once at, uh, as well in the in, in, at feeder. I yeah. remember that very well. Like like in the very early days, we had a team member who had a very very big dog, yeah. right? And there you meet this kind of barriers of a dog policy because yeah. those big dogs are they take up a lot of room. First, second, room wouldn't have been the problem those days, but second, they scare others. Yes. There are people around who maybe are afraid of big dogs. Yeah. And third, if it's a rainy day, you know? Yeah, it gets everywhere. I think these are startup problems that big banks just never get to deal with. So yeah. you've definitely been there and been in the trenches. Listen, um, I want to get a feel for what you're doing post-feed all. What's, what's life for you now? Uh, what, what's exciting you? Well, it's it's as stressful as before. I have to admit, yeah. um, it's just that I would deal with other topics. You know, it's definitely I I would say I I switched my time portfolio from uh, corporate discussions. Let me call it like that, into really useful and value centric discussions. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm I'm so happy blessed and excited about that because it is um, so we, we are living in a time in which you have you you can see and find and feel how, how really vibrant the whole marketplace still is mm -hmm. I have to say still because I really expected kind of the the wipe to go down one yeah. day you know I, I I think actually the opposite is the case uh, blockchain AI machine learning all the data stuff uh, crypto keeps it not only going it, it really accelerates absolutely the speed and the development that is extremely exciting I would really say that uh, even the technologies I just mentioned are reshaping the financial services over the next five years I, I, I take any bet on this mm -hmm. um, I enjoy so much that I now have the time to get my, my, my mind around that yes. so to say uh, because I was kind of mind blocked before. Well, yeah. it's it's the deeper you are in a day-to-day -day operation, the more the, the you less you have you time are. to think, Absolutely. read, and, and learn. Absolutely. So this is why I enjoy first of all this kind of mental freedom mm -hmm. to to uh, to see that again. And I really think that we are living in an environment in which you now can, so to say, coming from my feeder thing, pivot the whole thing into the next level. Ah, it's right? exciting to see what comes next from it. Yeah, here, well, so. I, I believe me, my wife has exactly the same question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> what's coming next? We, we're all hanging on the edge of our seats to know. So um, if you were to talk to yourself from 10 years ago, what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? What have you learned in the last sort of decade? Well, believe me, also since leaving FIDRA, I uh, tried to identify this kind of make or break points in the history of FIDRA because um, I you know there had been a number of of course we did a great job full stop okay let's park that aside but if you if you kind of this bias view if you take that bias view aside and you have a self-critical view to what has uh, developed been the development been like over the last 10 12 years actually that long i would say the single cause the single root problem, the single biggest root problem as a bank we always had was a kind of too small equity base mm -hmm. in the bank. Now let us identify maybe in two sentences or three what the reason for that would have been. So I think 
we, we started with the right concept and the right time because people jumped on it. The community before we received banking license rammed up like five digits. Yeah. When we had the banking license, we had 10,000 of people in the community already. So that was like a jump start, yeah. right? People pumped in money on the deposits like hell and so on and so forth. So overall acceptance on the consumer side, good. Second, acceptance on the shareholder or on the investment side, fairly good, so to say, or less good. Why? Because we had, of course, one very trusting shareholder those days. Anthemis was the second, that was Exorge. Anthemis was the second one, something like 2011. However, we have not been living in those days like we do, they do today, where yeah. you say you, do, you have a 50 million capital increase, just like that. Yeah. Right? So the investment market itself was not that much educated those days yeah. um, to trust into such a concept and development. That resulted in a, in a um, consequent uh, under, or let me say, too low equity base. Being a bank, that's not a good situation, right? Mm -hmm. Because being a bank is strictly related to your equity. You, of course, want to be compliant. You, of course, want to fulfill your return on equities. The relator, the, to the regulator, by the way, the regulator is, of course, another very important stakeholder to this development. And the regulator fully supported what we did because they've been... In, in the personal conversations, very, very supportive and, and delivering tailwind and saying, okay, well, you can improve this, you must improve that, and so on and so forth. However, they, they appreciated having a new concept around, having this kind of customer centricity around. But at the end of the day, I would say uh, shareholder structure, we, I would go a different route if, if it would have been possible. Uh, equity, um, definitely very critical always. Um, yeah. So that, that are the, the, the main problems. I, I think that's uh, always interesting to be able to step back from these things and look at them. So listen, um, if you're uh, bearing in mind a lot of our listeners uh, either work in fintech or finance or they want to work in fintech and uh, you know, some of them are later stages in their career, some of them early stages, but to those people at, at, at that stage in their career where they're looking at what's next or, or, or uh, just kind of looking to learn from somebody who's been successful, uh, what was the best bit of a career advice you ever got or what's the, the advice that you would give to somebody in this space when they're thinking about their career? Started the customer problem. Mm -hmm. It sounds so simple. Yeah, it is. It is. Actually, yeah, you're right. It it's really sounds simple. It's maybe because I started my business life in a hotel. I'm not a banker. Mm -hmm. For me, maybe it sounds always simple because how could I, being in a working in a hotel, how could you ignore the customer problem? Mm -hmm. You know, it's simply impossible. <laughs> the, the customer comes down and goes, the electricity doesn't work. Exactly, yeah. and you get a direct feedback why you tip, you know? Yeah. So this is what you're clearly up to. But really started a customer problem, I would say, listen, don't, don't listen to the noise in the market. Have your own opinion about it. Uh, of course, don't try to educate in particular, not your shareholders. This mm -hmm. is something I, I must say is only, and I don't mean it negatively. It's just really just about your time budget, mm -hmm. right? So stay simple, as simple as you can. However, have a customer-centric approach. Um, yeah, and uh, and remain the customer in, in the middle of your strategy. Uh, integrate the customer as much as possible. and. And, and then, and I will speak about that on stage later, mm -hmm. um, have one thing in mind, and this is something, uh, two golden rules I learned actually. The one who has the gold makes the rules. This is the golden rule number one. And the other golden rule is, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. 
So wow. uh, have that in mind. Wow. Uh, there's some, some wise words in there. Listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about you, uh, Matthias, if they want well, to Well, I have my own blog site and, and my own profile and blog site at matthias-trona.com. And, mm. and, of course, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. So Brilliant. Do check out Matthias. And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Uh, and you can give me an email, simon at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now. Thank you. Simon, thanks for having me. Great. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you from Money 2020 in Amsterdam. I'm Jason Bates, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Stephen Ufford. Uh, Ufford. Ufford. Sorry about that. CEO Sorry. of Trulio. You got it. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Nice to be here. Um, can you give our listeners, or people who haven't heard of you, what do you do? We do global identity verification. So um, one of the uh, old timers at Money 2020, by the looks of it, a lot of companies do that. Uh, our model is a little bit more mature in that I think we currently operate what I think is the biggest network of identity verification providers in the world. A little over 400 unique sources in now 110 countries. So we're doing very well with in terms of coverage. I think that's our big differentiator. So who would a global identity provider be? What kind of company? Uh, oh, oh, you mean what within our ecosystem? Yes. Well, we don't. We're the global platform, so we bring on all kinds of different regional services. So, as an example, by my count, about fifty percent of the uh, point solutions here are already in our platform. Okay. So, if you're doing a um, identity verification using a passport photo, okay. that's one type. If it's a data-based identity verification, that's another. If it's a mobile carrier, that's another. Okay. So, we like to bring all those solutions into one spot and allow our customers to leverage whatever they need uh, around the world to conduct an identity verification. Because of so course, you, it's very different. You founded quite a few startups. Yes. What brought you to, to this idea? Well, uh, you know, there's a, a mission and then a passion. Okay. So the mission uh, is to verify all 7 billion plus of us on the planet now uh, for whole kinds of purposes, uh, which leads me to my passion, which is financial inclusion. Uh -huh. So for me... Uh, having been lucky enough to have traveled the world a lot with my other startups, I can really see the difference that the trust gap uh, brings to emerging markets where someone like you and me, an entrepreneur uh, perhaps, I think you're the founder of uh, your company, may not have um, the ability to be trusted. Sure. And as a result, it's very, very hard to get uh, traction and participation from partners and investors and um, even customers when you're not trusted. So. so not everyone on the planet has a utility bill they can bring right. in, I guess. Or even an ID. Sure. Frankly, sadly. So uh, what's the business model? The business model is uh, very similar to any networking business in that it is uh, one integration and one contract for our clients and that accesses all kinds of different uh, services. Uh, it's a transactional network, so any identity verification that we perform, uh, we charge our customers for uh, a transaction, uh, okay. like a transactional fee, and then that on, through our supply chain is shared with all of our partners around the world. And you're here at Money 2020 talking about a new strategic partnership. Yes, we are, actually. I'm um, very excited about it. So obviously, we're, uh, you know, recently celebrated our sixth birthday. So while we have hundreds of customers, which I'm very proud of, mostly in fintech and uh, big tech, we haven't, uh, you know, wholeheartedly crossed into the line or crossed the line into traditional banking yet. 
Right. And yet most of the world's uh, people, you know, wet carbon people, uh, still transact with local regional banks or financial institutions. So our partnership is with Refinitiv, which recently came out of uh, a transaction with Thomson Reuters. That's the risk business. It's arguably the most, you know, the, historically the most, I would say the, the gold standard um, in identity and compliance with uh, operating a lot of famous brands in our space, including World Check, uh-huh. which I often say I've never met a uh, compliance officer that got fired for using World Check. Uh-huh. So it's a, a very uh, storied brand in that sense, and they have over 40,000 customers. So I'm excited uh, to announce that we'll be partnering with them to bring the Global Gateway technology outside of big and fintech into the world of traditional banking across their massive client base that uses WorldCheck today. And do you think that's a, a sign of the sort of maturity of the market? I mean, you've been around for six years right. and, I, and there weren't that many, I assume, providers right at the, at the start. True. And now with a network of 400 and globalization, uh, I guess that, that creates the need for a platform like yours to to start to simplify and to bring together the, the best of breed across the world. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been a need. It depends who you are in the ecosystem. As a consumer in an emerging market, I think the need's been there for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, but of, of late, uh, with all of the innovations that have happened in fintech, it's created um, a competitive environment for incumbent banks and financial institutions to really start taking fintech seriously. Uh-huh. Who would have thought? <laughs> uh, and now when we look back, you know, a lot of uh, what fintech does, big banks want to do, and even medium to small size banks need to do to stay relevant. Sure. And so they need the same tools that fintech is using to compete. And so we see real demand in that uh, sphere of customer now for a global identity verification solution that is all really built around building trust in an online environment. As we know, a lot of incumbents build trust with you in face-to-face. Sure. And that's just not um, necessarily relevant for the next generation of customers for those, th- those banks. So we're very excited to be able to deliver our product now to such a large customer base in many, many countries. And by the way, it has the benefit of you know, bringing, going back to my passion, uh, more people into the financial system faster than if we tried to take on the entire world ourselves when it comes sure. to customers. I assume that there's a, a big regulatory component to this as well. I mean, the, yes. I remember going through the JMS LSG guidelines, like the some weekend like, reading was it? Oh wow! <laughs> but it was so high level of of uh, the, and this, these are the guidelines that are used. The Joint Money Laundering Steering Committee right. Group, the the guidelines used in the UK about how you can identify someone or, or not. Um, but seems so high level and amorphous as to like, what do you really need? Like, right. how do you work? You work across the world. How does this work with regulators in different spaces? So the reality is, is that you know, regulators are people with opinions, and um, often those opinions are based on cultural biases, based on where they grew up and where they're operating. And so I think that you know, anti-money laundering, know your customer, or just general now approaches to digital identity are extremely uh, verticalized in that they are, you know, identity is a very um, sensitive topic based on where you live. Sure. And so as a result, all relating regulation around those sensitivities comes up a little bit differently. And, you know, as history shows us, human beings often have difficulty agreeing collectively on anything. And I don't think identity is any different. And so uh, I see, you know, similar uh, approaches to identity and regulation across the world. As, as you say, we have customers transacting and actually in May, uh, for the first time in a single month, we hit over 112 countries wow. doing digital identity. 
uh, within our network. So we do see a lot of different regulatory environments. But while the intention of what we're trying to execute, i.e. preventing bad guys from getting yeah. money, is, is, is present across all of the markets, the approach to doing that is different. And so I don't think I see that changing right. uh, anytime soon. And so kind of, a, uh, again, this interoperability issue around how do you make identity easy for the user and clients is a principal uh, challenge for us at Trulio, one that uh, we think we've solved a little bit of and probably have a long way to go. But I'm seeing probably like you are today at the conference, uh, you know, every solution is different. And sure. it requires uh, a real focus on making all the solutions interoperable, which is, to me, the Achilles heel of the entire industry. Always has been, probably always will be. So I guess a lot of people who listen to this are familiar with the, the European way of signing up for a new challenger bank or a new fintech, showing my passport, liveness checks, online database stuff. Like, how does that differ in the, the unbanked, the underbanked, the you know, second and third world? Well, unfortunately, um, especially in third world countries, many people, you know, many hundreds of millions, close to over a billion people, don't even have a government-issued identity document sure. to start from. So those type of technologies um, don't necessarily apply to everybody. So again, if your goal is to cover everybody, it's not to say that they're not great and valid in some markets, like in Europe, sure. but um, in other markets, they don't work. So I think... Starting back to, well, what are those people doing in those countries today? Uh, it comes down to a reputational uh, identity based on what they're, how their community knows them, and that's how they transact. And so how do we facilitate a path to transmit that into a larger ecosystem of identity? And I think it comes down as an example. One of my favorite uh, themes for Money 2020 last year was mobile carriers actually have a huge, huge, huge role to play in emerging markets and third world countries in that often the only record of that person's existence is often with their mobile carrier. We have people uh, transacting using mobile minutes to pay for electricity in those parts of the world. Sure. So it's, a, again, another avenue, similar approach. We all want to get to a trusted identity, but the, the raw materials that we have to work with are different. And so whether you're using the UK, as you said, or Canada too, you know, snap a photo or even, you know, in the U.S. or whether you're logging in with the bank credential or whether you're doing just a straight up database check. It, we really do need to bring all of these things together to have a comprehensive solution that works for 7 billion people. And I guess we've started to see um, almost a convergence of a lot of these, pr these onboarding processes or KYC AML stuff whether it's an individual or small business or whatever across, across the world. Is that, is that something you're seeing? Are, are people heading towards a common journey? Uh, I think what, you know, when we talk about convergence, um, you know, the answer is yes and no there. I see that uh, in our interactions maybe with our top 20 clients, and especially in big tech, who are primarily focused on user experience, balancing um, the friction levels, Right. with meeting regulatory requirements or even policy internally for fraud. I see a convergence around the methods that, you know, collectively that group of customers feels is the best method to do digital identity from a friction sure. perspective. However, I've noticed that the methodology used there greatly differs um, in terms of preference for now the incumbent banks that we've started to work with. Okay. So they have a higher tolerance for friction, but are often uh, you know, targeting priority one on meeting 
um, a different set of standards that they perceive apply to their business than maybe big tech or fintech does. And so there's this constant kind of uh, sure. you know, argument going on internally about how do we stay competitive with fintech. And often fintech is criticized by incumbent banks, as we all know, for not meeting a certain bar. Sure. And I think there's a truth probably to both sides. And, uh, you know, the disruptors are trying to now challenge incumbents. And so finding weaknesses in user experience is probably a great area to exploit. But we don't, nobody in society wants that to come at a cost of, say, another 9-11. Sure. And I think that all parties involved um, are converging around that. Singularity. So, I, so I, I guess it's interesting that sort of the trade-off or whether right. you can find solutions that aren't a trade-off, that actually much lower friction and a great experience and very high, yes. you know, uh, set a very high bar, which I guess is, is where we're heading. But at least in the UK and some other European countries, no one wants an identity card. No one wants... It, it's... It's beyond a technology. It becomes a political issue as well, which I guess you come up, come up to all the time. Yes, I mean, the sensitivity around a government, again, creating a large database, even a government body, let alone a startup, sure. um, is around principally how you build your products. And I think in 2019, I think it's a great thing that privacy has come uh, much more top of mind for billions of us around the planet, maybe for... The, the you know reasons that we wish weren't, but it's there now. And as a result, uh, there's a real moment in time now to get the consumer voice involved in what finding out exactly what that principle and best practice is. To be honest, I include myself in this description. I was very willing to trade privacy for services in the past. And sure. I find myself as a consumer now less willing. And I think that's the moment in time that we're looking for. And so this year into next year, I think the winning companies that utilize solutions that find that balance are going to be the winners in attracting the next uh, segment of consumers that are maybe like me, a little more privacy focused these days. Sure. I recently found myself, and I'm in the industry, choosing a service provider and financial services based on a higher friction, what I knew was a higher friction onboarding experience for what I perceived to be a safer experience for my information. And I can honestly say, personally, I've never made that choice until recently. I think it's interesting that there are products and there are things where, you know, if you say, click on the button and we'll get you a mortgage in 20 seconds, right. actually, that ends up being a negative because people view that as, well, this is a serious thing for me, and it doesn't seem like you're taking it too seriously, right. or it seems yeah. almost flippant of, click the button and borrow the money. Right, the biggest loan and financial transaction in my life, I can invest more than 20 seconds. Sure. So, it, uh, and we find that, uh, that that friction, both for prevent me from doing things that are bad for me, you know, do, you, do I want to be taking out a loan at this point? Do you, are you really sure? And also, the things that are very serious, making me feel like you're taking it seriously, yes. it almost creates a, a counter pressure to the faster, slicker, easier, like, let, let's get this done. And I think that's the, the beauty of um, seeing identity broadly in that there is context to every transaction. And I think online, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, you know, transactional identity for a long time. Everything on the internet's been built around transactional identity, meaning we look at a, an e-commerce transaction and to facilitate that particular checkout, we do things. Yeah. But what's I think the paradigm shift is is now is that 
as consumers, we're forcing companies and governments to look at our identities more holistically sure. and bring that context to me in the form of choice. And I am willing, as in your example, to invest more time and come, you know, cross a friction bridge to facilitate a certain kind of transaction. Sure. But I'm not willing to do the same thing in other scenarios. Sure. And I think empowering that consumer as an owner of their own information is the path. It's always been the path. The question is, is did we develop the right tools? And I think we're finding out very rapidly now, which I'm quite excited to see. Which I guess, you know, brings me on to that. You've been doing this for six years. You've seen the industry grow and burgeon and fintechs and incumbents start to get in here. Like, what do you wish you'd have known a few years ago? I wish that I would have known, um, well, one as a consumer, that um, in a fairly short order, the tailwinds would be in my favor to force, you know, what I perceive as needed regulation and um, pressure on control of my own information. Okay. I did not, I, if I, you know, I always forget this money toy is not in Las Vegas, so the betting analogy is a little <laughs> off, but it, was I a betting man, I would have thought that that was 10 years out, not two or three years out okay. from, this is just a few years ago, which we're there now. And the second bit, um, I really did think that government identity, government-issued identity, we see a lot of, um, again, verticalized solutions popping up throughout Europe and Canada. And sure. um, I thought that there would be a more harmonized approach. And I, again, maybe that's a little naive in that I thought for something as important as this, mm. that we could get world governments to rally around a standard like EDAS, like Europe did. Sure. But we haven't been able to make that across the borders, across the pond yet, and sure. we want to do it our own way. And going back to what we're trying to solve, we're again solving a, 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 an internet problem, which is global in nature all the time when it's the internet, regionally. Sure. And that's never, ever been historically good for the consumer or users online. It's never worked out for us. My identity, my Canadian identity, sure. as verified as it might be and as privacy-centric as it may be, the way that we, governments have set up things now, there still won't be a way for me to transverse the world with that identity. And... Uh, that's truly his challenge, is how can we take the good intentions of world government now that I thought was going to be the silver bullet and stitch together all these verticalized solutions to bring them to both fintech, big tech, and now through Refinitive, uh, traditional banking in a more meaningful way for people. Well, I guess it uh, keeps you busy in your day job. Right. <laughs> Probably in the, in the way that keeping telephone poles up keeps telephone, <laughs> all the phone companies busy. The telephone pole network that truly is built around the world, it's a lot of telephone poles. And you, know, you get number 500 up, number one through 10 is rotting out, you got to go redo them. And I think uh, someone has to do that hard work, and I'm very proud of my team, but it certainly does keep us busy for sure. Fantastic. So what's the best advice as you've been along this journey? You know, what advice have you been given that's, that's really impacted you? Uh, so I think this is a little bit of a cliche to say, but I think identity for me has become, I mean, you said six years. I appreciate that, but it, for me, it's actually over 20. Oh, wow. So I've been doing this for a really long time. Um, and I think my approach, like many in, of my peers in the industry, has been to focus on the technology first. And the technology-driven approach of startups of the past, um, both mine and others, has not yielded adoption. And with Trulio of this time, I got some great advice in the beginning, and it was it focus on solving the problem for 
the customer, the user first, and then find the technologies that solve the sure. problem. And I have never built a startup in this way before. And evidently, as this is now my largest one, uh, may have been the right way to go from the beginning. And so you know, whether you call that the build it and they will come or, you know, that's never worked for me. Uh, so in this case, building around the use case and solving with the customer voice in mind, not what I think should be built, sure. has actually yielded the best results. And that was the best piece of advice probably in my entire career. It's funny, isn't it, that uh, putting technology in the background means you have to understand technology to start off with, which means it was in the foreground at some point. But you have to learn it and then forget that you're uh, an expert in it in order to then focus on customer problems. That's Whereas people who have the customer in their sort of foreground all the time have never really sort of built out the understanding of the capabilities of what technology can do. Right, yes. It's a really interesting sort of... Uh, There's a uh, dichotomy there. Yeah. But I'll bet you out of everybody on the floor, the most successful vendors in this space um, will have balanced customer voice more heavily against the technology that they think oh, should be used. Sure. Uh, and I would put myself uh, in the graveyard of entrepreneurs that have built way too many things that because I thought it was the best way to build it sure. versus listening first. Actually, almost entirely listening and doing, hard to believe for me, <laughs> not much talking. But the reality is, is that is the best way to build technology. Sure. Because if you happen to be in a position where you'd like it to be used one day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think you're right, it's a balance, but it is not an equal balance. Steven, as much as I like it to be. Thank you for joining us. Yes, likewise. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. Carter Worldwide provides issuer processing designed for the evolution of banking and payments. Carta is the engine behind fintech innovation around the globe, empowering new disruptors and enabling established banks to develop new products for the rapidly changing market. Carta's next-generation platform excels where legacy systems are challenged, delivering adaptive, modern solutions for bank challengers, money movers, and the leading innovators of the digital economy. With Trulio, we help organizations find out if it's truly you online. Global identity verification through Trulio's digital identity network enables organizations to verify 5 billion individuals in over 190 countries to help meet KYC and AML requirements and reduce fraud around the world. Speed up your customer onboarding online from days to seconds. One contract, one integration, one solution. Visit Trulio.com today. That's T-R-U-L-I-O-O.com. Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews, coming to you from Money 2020 in Amsterdam. I am Simon Taylor, and it's my pleasure to be joined by uh, Giles Sutherland, who's MD at Carter Worldwide, our sponsors here at Money 2020. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And thank you for bringing this amazing show to the people watching at home and the people listening on our podcast. Um, so thanks for coming in. How are you? Uh, exhausted, but good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's I think that's the answer for everyone here, right? And, and that's on the first day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a marathon. I, like, how do they make it so big every year? It's kind of nuts. Yeah, it's wild. Um, but yeah, it's good. I think there's a lot of action. Everyone, all the, I think everyone comes here for the same reason to all gather and connect in one place. So it's a necessary evil, but it's uh, it's effective. Everyone who's anybody is, is definitely here, that's for sure. So um, remind our listeners who might not be familiar, uh, what does Carter Worldwide do? 
Uh, Sucarta Worldwide is an issuing processor. Uh, we position ourselves as a modern processor that's enabling fintechs. Um, uh, we call ourselves kind of the engine behind fintech innovation. So if you look at some of the uh, fintechs, neobanks, challengers, as well as some of the interesting things some of the established uh, banks and FIs are doing to innovate, uh, and if you looked under the hood at what the engine was that was allowing them to issue cards, do some of the services that might transact, and particularly focused on the network rails, Visa and MasterCard, uh, we're enabling that. So um, I think historically we've seen quite a bit of innovation on the acquiring processing. Yeah. Which most listeners, I would imagine, know the difference between issuing and acquiring, but um, not yeah, always the case. Yeah, it's worth into that because mm. like the, the, the 101 stuff, we, we don't always hit, but it's worth going back to the difference between issuing and acquiring. Please, be my guest. Uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think we saw a lot of hype, uh, and, and deservedly, with uh, the likes of Stripe, uh, Square, when they first came out with that dongle that allowed uh, merchants to accept payments in a way that allows for um, some of the new uh, digital formats and use cases to, to come out. And so there's yeah. a lot of innovation to allow merchants, and particularly in the digital and e-com space, to accept payments in new ways. And now more recently, and this is where Carta fits in, we're seeing a lot of innovation on the issuing side of the equation. So allowing entities to issue card products, whether that be a debit card where you've got challengers like a Monzo, TransferWise, Revolut, et cetera, actually going head to head against banks. Uh, there's also a lot of interesting use cases leveraging virtual cards for dispersing funds, new lending use cases where you might be offering credit, but in a way that's different from a traditional credit card. So we're seeing a lot of activity there, and that's squarely where we fit in. And, and the traditional credit card issuers, debit card issuers might struggle to, to do some of that because their systems are 20, 30, 40 years old and um, every change requires a project and the APIs don't exist. You can only send them messages and all kinds of challenging stuff. You're doing my job for me. I, I don't even uh, need to say anything. They said it perfectly. <laughs> uh, I know that world reasonably well. Um, so uh, what, what are you doing at Carter? And, and uh, can you give us an example? You sort of mentioned some fintech names, but like, who would your clients be? And, um, and, and can, you know, is there anybody that we, we know and heard of that we talk about? Yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, you know, what, one of our partners once said that um, Carter is the best kept f secret in fintech, uh. which is a bit of a, maybe a slight bit of a compliment, um, but we're behind the scenes and I think don't mind being somewhat less known. I think from a processor perspective, yeah, you kind of um, want to be that. You right? don't really want to be in the news too much. Uh, that if can nobody's be a, heard of you, it means you're doing your job. We hope so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah but we're behind some of the um, larger fintech household names you might know. TransferWise is, you know, I think a great example where um, we're uh, providing the processing for their borderless bank account. Um, they've been expanding um, really rapidly uh, in the news recently with some of their um, uh, financial raise. Um, so they would be uh, a marquee client that we're extremely proud of, for sure. And, and that's, that's a classic example of an innovation that becomes possible if your platform allows you to do it. That borderless account is a, you know, for, for a segment of customers. That ability to be a freelancer that lives and works in many countries, that, that, accept, that accepts and can make payments in many countries without having to deal with different bank accounts. Super useful product. But unless I've got the infrastructure that can, can help me manage the card rails, I'm going to really struggle trying to twist and turn and cajole Visa and MasterCard and everybody yes. in between to, yes. to make that work. Yeah, and, and that's really where we fit in. So we've got use cases. Um, I'm, I'm based in Canada. A uh, client of ours is um, 
basically dispersing funds to Uber drivers. So Uber wanted a way to leverage those Visa MasterCard rails to enable payouts, and we're providing the tech there. So we're very much this somewhat invisible but uh, critical enabling layer that's allowing some of the more visible and you know, maybe more exciting use cases within fintech. So that's kind of the place we play. You mentioned some markets there. Where, where are you in the world? Where can people talk to you? Yeah, so Europe has traditionally been a really active market for us. You know, I think uh, from an issuing processing perspective, Europe was one of the early leaders in e-money issuance, so in allowing non-banks to come out. So that was a great area for us to cut our teeth uh, and launch a lot of activity. We're active in North America as well, and then recently have expanded into Asia-Pacific um, and are starting to move into um, some additional markets, which would be Middle East, Africa, and Latin wow. America. So, so the worldwide isn't just there. It, it's, no, it's not. not it's yeah. not like a stepbrother's reference <laughs> no, or no. something. <laughs> no, that's. I, <laughs> you're not the first person, though, to connect those dots. I, like I, that. I really did think it was going to be like that. That would be a great, like, if you wanted to, like, to go viral, the stepbrother's thing is, is always there. I might, might take you up on that one. That's a good <laughs> idea. Thinking viral marketing, man. It's what we do at 11 of us. Um, all right. So talk to me about the payments industry. Um, payments industry, obviously, Money 2020 has, has been talking about the future of payments for some years. Uh, but, you know, you see the valuations of the, the stripes and the adjuns and the, the massive sort of consolidation of, like, we just had, um, I think it was Global Payments and TSIS have yeah. now combined together. FIS, First Data, and uh, WorldPay are now this, this conglomerate. So you've got these massive players. You know, you guys are kind of much smaller but more yeah. nimble, potentially, <laughs> yeah, arguably. Um, so, you know, what, what's that? What's happening in the issuer processing world, and, and how are you seeing the market? Sure. So, you know, I think um, it's very true. You know, I think if you look at the the large players, um, the analogy I heard once was you've got a, um, you know, oil, let's say a tanker out on the ocean. It's big. It's stable. It serves a really valuable function. Those may not go away anytime soon. But then you've got uh, these speedboats that are more nimble, that are doing some interesting things. And you, and you need both, and I think both are going to coexist. But as we see, um, I think a lot of the activity around fintechs, I don't think anyone believes that's going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, and I think one, if you look at the fundamental uh, drivers behind that, and even just comparing a fintech to an established bank, um, you know, a bank that has brick-and-mortar branches, you know, I think statistically about half of their cost is actually going to support that network of branches and three quarters of their IT spend is going just to keeping the lights on and maintaining those decades old systems that you mentioned. Wow, so that's a lot of cost and that means that uh, the banks that don't have to deal with that have a lower cost, which means they can offer better savings rates, they can offer better loan rates and still make a profit. Absolutely, yeah, so I, another you know, keep some of the stats flowing, but so forgive me for that. But um, you, like, if you take that even further, um, you know, I think the break-even cost for those traditional banks on a per-customer basis is two, three, four hundred dollars, maybe fifty dollars per customer. So, you know, when you put those things in stark contrast, it's hard to imagine that this pace of adoption and growth for fintechs is going to go anywhere. But it's critical that the underlying technology is also modern, and so that's where you know we're directly attacking that and I think um, we'll see some of those big players and some of that consolidation may actually be in response a little bit because um, you know, I think the disruption is really just uh, in the early part of the curve. It's interesting that um, the economics are what's changing 
Um, but if you're big and you can't move fast enough, it's an interesting reaction to respond to that by getting bigger. <laughs> um, but anyway, that, that's by the by. Um, let's, let's talk about, um, you, you mentioned sort of briefly um, you know, the, the Canadian and the North American market. Um, I think this, um, and you mentioned fintechs and banks, but what about the big techs? Because you know, with the launch of the Apple card, you know, this, there's some really interesting time in the issuer processing space right now. Um, what do you think about how that's changing the view on the market? Yeah, so I think uh, it's really indicative of uh, some of the transformation that's taking place where if uh, we saw in the early days uh, these challengers and neobanks coming out with a proposition that is um, really focusing on the user experience, focusing on customer acquisition, uh, and decoupling as some of the infrastructure that normally went along with banking, I think you take that one step further where you say, I want to look at how I'm engaging with customers, how customers are making these various functions and payments. It doesn't even need to be someone that calls themselves a bank in the way even some of the neobanks will still refer to themselves as a bank or a financial service provider. Uh, I think as consumers get more comfortable with payments being more focused and more the value chain being directed at what they really care about, why couldn't it be... Apple or any other big tech. So I think we'll start to see that. And, and you know, statistically, and I think some of the uh, industry reports show that consumer trust and familiarity and comfort with Apple is, you know, on par or even greater than, you know, maybe the bank that they've grown up with. So I, I don't think that's going anywhere anytime uh, soon. And people will do a lot for a 2% discount at Apple. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of mad what, what you, can, you can force there. Uh, so listen, I, I really want to get a feel for uh, where you're seeing Costa Worldwide going in the next two, three years. Are you uh, kind of, is it going to be more geographic expansion? What, what are you talking to your clients about? And, and what's the future look like for you guys? Yeah, so I think geographic expansion is definitely a big part of the future. Uh, you know, we're here in Amsterdam, and so I think it's fitting uh, to reference this. You know, we've seen a lot of activity in Europe, you know, some of those you know, name, household name, neobanks are here and publicly talking about, you know, on stages even here today, uh, their expansion plans. Uh, so we have clients that we started with in Europe that are now asking us to support them uh -huh. in more and more markets. Um, some are easier than others, uh, to be frank. So uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see, uh, for example, some markets in Asia Pacific or even Latin America that are really fundamentally different in terms of uh, the payments infrastructure, the ecosystem of fintech and technology. And so as those happen, I think there's a lot of untapped opportunity and certainly demographic populations that are also prime candidates. Really exciting stuff. If I look at Southeast Asia, a country like Indonesia with uh, 300 million potential customers, yeah. uh, you've got some parts of the country where you know, debit and credit rails are the norm, and then you've got other parts of the country where there's, there's the beginnings of QR codes, but you know, you've not really got that Chinese, like that whole yes. part of the world really, really intrigues me. So it's gonna be exciting to watch. Listen, if, if I'm at a FinTech or I'm at a bank and I need a different kind of issue or processor, where do I go to find out more? Uh, so Carter Worldwide would be the place to start. Um, so that's our uh, website. You can reach out to info at Carter Worldwide or my email, which is gsutherland at Carter Worldwide. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we've got teams based in North America. Uh, London is our European office, and we've recently opened a Singapore office. So, um, yeah, we'd love to talk to anyone. Every time you say worldwide, I think worldwide, <laughs> worldwide. I can't unhear it now. <laughs> thank you for being a good sport, and thank you for, uh, for joining us. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. 
Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. We're back here again at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. It's, uh, what is it, like halfway through day two? I'm getting tired, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm joined by two guys who are doing some really, really interesting stuff. So first up, we've got Paul Riseborough, who's the Chief Commercial Officer at Metro Bank. How's it going, Paul? Good. Well, glad to be here. I mean, you've uh, you've just got here for the show, haven't you? So you, you Literally just landed, yeah. quite took in all of the majesty of everything that's not here. Yet, but, not uh, yet, no. You need to go and have a wander around. There's some, I, I mean, there's some great things to eat, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah absolutely, good. yeah. And uh, you're joined by uh, Tariq Hassan, who's the CEO over at Code4000. How's it going? Great, thank you. Equally, uh, equally happy to be here. I mean, we probably should get into like Code4000 straight up the bat. Like, okay, why the name? And we'll get into what you do in a second, but the maybe the name makes what you do make more sense as well. I think it will. So uh, um, the two words, Code and 4000. Code, I think we've got a, a relatively fair handle on. We teach. Uh, a specific group of people out to code. The 4,000 refers to something slightly more uh, challenging. Okay. One of my co-founders, uh, uh, Dwayne Jackson, uh, was uh, a product of the UK care uh, system, grew up in a very, very tough set of uh, realities and uh, was, uh, was eventually um, uh, caught uh, with a substantial amount of uh, uh, drugs uh, and incarcerated in the US. Yeah. Um, whilst uh, in prison in the US, uh, he started to look at the uh, ways of changing the story. What could he do to avoid criminality on release? He was deported back to the UK. He learned to code mm. whilst in prison. He left prison. He set up a company, uh, one of the first online fully uh, functioning uh, firms to deal with uh, the crunching of all your number needs, yep. cash flow with a K. Uh, as an accountancy online platform, it was hugely successful and he sold it for an undisclosed sum. 25 and a bit million pounds. Um, from incarceration to selling that business, 4,000 days. Wow. Hence, Code 4,000. I mean, that's pretty impressive. 4,000 days. I mean, people talk about 10,000 hours, don't they, to learn uh -huh. a thing. But uh -huh. 4,000 days, I guess that's, that's pretty impressive. And that probably speaks very much to what you're doing now. So do you want to give us a bit of an explanation of the, the business? Sure. And, and I guess, sure. uh, who, who is this? I mean, we know one person who this is really applicable to, but it feels Absolutely. like actually you know, these types of um, schemes can be really beneficial to a whole bunch of people. Sure. Well, Code 4000 came about from looking at a series of numbers. Initially, the numbers... Uh, that brought me to the project with the idea of what the UK taxpayer is paying mm. in recidivism. So just in the cost of seeing people going back into jail. Yeah. 15 billion pounds, uh, in fact, north of 15 billion last financial mm. year. Um, with a series of further just depressing statistics, one in two people go back into prison within 12 months. Yeah. Uh, the system has not changed, doesn't work, and just gets more and more expensive. What Code 4000 looked to do was look at that as... Uh, as a concept, could we influence change in that space? We were conscious of the fact that we are in need of coders as an industry, yeah. as a world. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hugely valuable skill set. Could we find a static population to teach, to then pipeline out into meaningful, sustainable employment? We started looking at the UK prison system. The UK prison system is a very, very challenging space to operate in because they are default no. They are risk averse to a point where in the private sector, I mean, we all operate under legislation and of course, God bless it for all the things it does. Um, he says through gritted teeth. With that in mind, the prison system and the UK government operate at a point of, uh, of fear for all things. So we were pitching in an idea to teach what is ostensibly an online learning platform and then pipeline these individuals once taught out into jobs. Wow. They didn't like the thought of that. <laughs> 
Well, but where does this get us to? So I guess we're in a situation where, like you say, people can learn. Like, how is, the, how is this being developed in, in a prison, essentially? So are they being given uh, better access? Are they being given um, teaching? Is it a... How, how does the, has the process work? Absolutely. We had to think on our feet because, of course, there are no... Uh, there is no provision for online access in prisons. And, yeah. of course, you know, the most elegant way to learn to code is pulling it from the ether. You yeah. learn as a shared resource via all the things that we've got access to online. I was, I was going to say, like, logistically, if I don't know a thing, I Google it. You know what I mean? So, Absolutely. like, being in it, that's not easy yeah. when you're in prison, right? It's, so, it's actually physically impossible. Yeah. And if you do do it, you're looking at an extra few years on your sentence. There you go. Uh, <laughs> if you have managed to find a route to access that. Um, we, we built a solution, mm. that being an offline learning platform. Yeah. Uh, something that mirrors the internet, that's daily updated and allows all of our men to go through a process to learn how to code within what looked like commercial coding businesses inside the prison estates. Mm. Um, they're quite unique in the way that they feel. We wanted it to feel like a business. We wanted to get the men work ready yeah. from the point of accessing that course. Um, we placated the nose and the risk-averse nature of uh, the Ministry of Justice and the UK government. We got the platform into the prisons. We created these spaces that don't feel dissimilar to, well, maybe a little dissimilar to where we are today. This is next level. But it does have that commercial feel of a cool tech space. Yeah. Green grass, deck chairs, stand-up areas. We get the guys engaging in that yeah. way of working. Great. Uh, the question was what we did with them once they graduate, once they come through our program, they've learned the requisite commercial skills, where do they go? Mm. Well, it, it feels like, I mean, the obvious answer is Metrobank right now. So like, <laughs> but um, like, how did you guys get involved in this, Paul? Because this, yeah, so this is a fantastic thing to address a bunch of different problems societal-wise, but I mean, lots of big organizations have problems with uh, finding really good engineers, right? Yeah, so my, uh, my involvement it was, it was quite bizarre, really. I was, I was in Aspen uh, in, in the US doing a fellowship at the Aspen Institute. They have something called the Finance Leaders Fellowship, 20 people from around the world. How do you connect finance to society? How do you, you know, make sure that finance serves society, not the other way around? And one of the things that you do on that, on that fellowship is you are encouraged to get proximate, as they say, to a problem, a really gnarly problem, and see if you can make a difference. Um, so I came back. We were introduced by a, a mutual friend. I was really blown away by the work that uh, Code 4000 are doing. And what we've done together is uh, built a sort of a platform to the side of Co4000, which is going called Strong Tomorrow, which is going to ensure that we can introduce graduates from the Co4000 uh, program to real world, you know, employment opportunities across banks and other players in the fintech and financial services community. So Metro is taking the first uh, graduate this summer uh, as a junior developer. We're very excited about that. And what's really struck me about the characters coming through is that. You know, they really want to turn their lives around. They're committed to doing the right thing. They want to put in the effort. You know, we need tech talent. Metro's always been very sort of committed to social mobility issues. Uh, so it's a natural fit. So we're really excited. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You're having to change so many different models and perceptions. You know, arguably, you know, a couple of years ago, getting a job in a bank with a, a, any sort of criminal... Uh, you know, conviction is hard, right? Um, but this is, a, it's, like I say, it really sort of feels aligned to the strategy that Metro's had for a while. You know, you guys have been kind of in and amongst communities and creating communities and, you know, doing things that actually I feel other banks have not. So this is really just a, another example of that, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, you know, we've, we've never mind meeting people. You know, we believe in the high street, for example, in terms of our physical footprint. 
But I think you know it's not it's not straightforward to take on somebody that's been yeah. in, in in prison. Um, you have to you know go through certain processes. Uh, and I think the critical thing that we're thinking very carefully about is how you support the individual when they join. It's yeah. not about here's a job and you know see you later. So uh, we're putting a lot of thought into how we support this particular individual as they as they join. But yeah, your, your general point is right. You know, banks need tech talent, um, uh, but we need to be open minded about where that comes from. I think a, a tech career, in many respects, is background blind. If you have the skills. Uh, then, then you can make a contribution. I think time, you know, time's gone by. You needed to have gone to Oxbridge and you know know how to work Excel. It's all changed a bit now. Yeah. Well, and I, and I mean, if you're taking the time to replicate a business environment to actually get people used to, not only from like you say, from an engineering skill set perspective, but being within the business context. I mean, the amount of engineers I know who can't actually string sentences together. So like, yeah. you might be you might be on some here. So uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, I guess what's what's next? The, you know, this sounds like it's a uh, a good opportunity to create opportunities for for you guys and for for everybody in this the the sort of value chain. It of is. This. So it is. Uh, what's the what's the success criteria are we looking for here? It's a great question. I think what we've done, and it is a it is a seismic piece of work that Metro Bank has put together with us, is to create a structure not just for this one graduate, but for all the graduates who come forward into yeah. the space. How this looks moving forward is to try and further engineer. Uh, social benefit through the people we teach. Yeah. Now, right now, I've got two huge Cat C, Category C male prisons uh, where we have these workshops, and they're teaching um, men between the ages of 18 and you know 90. Uh, that's great, and I love what we're doing. It's also regional. We're up in the north of England. As we expand the program, it was very clear to me that the fintech industry falls down in a couple of spaces quite badly. Women in tech, I think we're at 17% globally. It's unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, fact. Uh, black Asian minority groups in tech, 15% uh, across the entire industry. Again, it's unacceptable. The prison estates, unfortunately, show the reverse of that dynamic. We mm. have huge amounts of, uh, of, of, of black and Asian people incarcerated uh, in the UK. Uh, women in prison tend to be really marginalized in so many ways. There's a social stigma that attaches itself and that follows through into multiple spaces. It's a very, very difficult thing for women to find themselves in prison and for young people and for young people uh, who represent those uh, black and Asian uh, parts of our, of our, of our world. Um, we want to work there and yeah. to that end, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, our first women's prison workshop will open uh, Q4 of this year. And our first two young offenders institutions in London uh, will open hopefully just a little in front of that. Wow. Um, the idea being is that if we can create a narrative that allows young people and obviously women to engage with the tech platforms that we're giving them, to enter into an industry which I am absolutely confident is, 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 is kind of open arms for the different stories. Yeah. I mean, yes, our program brings various different checks and balances that we wouldn't be comfortable to, uh, to work uh, with uh, should they not be in play. They have yeah. to be there. But I think the industry is ready for this. I think what it does for those people who've fallen victim of crime uh, within those two groups is going to be seismic. And then uh, the medium term uh, goal, and by medium term, I mean, we've pushed this through in 18 months thus far. I'm looking to have this up and running by next year is that we want to get to the young people uh, and to the women prior to committing crime, prior to losing four or five years in a system, uh, which is a brutalizing yeah. uh, thing. Uh, that's the plan. With the uh, Strong Tomorrow platform, with the Metro Bank partnership, and I have to say some other pretty major um, banking uh, companies who are showing extreme interest. They are following 
in the uh, in the footsteps uh, mm. that's being trailblazed by Metro Bank, <laughs> I'm very optimistic that we can really see some some positive outcomes. Well, here. that's that's great. I think it's um, you know you're in a situation where you're trying to bring uh, you know hope to people who might have lost it, uh, and that's that's amazing. You know they've got that time now to uh, you know on their hands, and this is a possibly one of the most productive things that I've heard of doing with it. So, I'm, you know, amazing thing. Well done, guys, for kind of putting it all in place. Um, I mean, this is all about career advice, I guess, right? You know, we're in this situation where you're giving people such a strong steer into an industry that actually desperately needs this type of resources. But, I mean, what's the best career advice you guys have ever been given? Uh, be humble, I think. I think, you know, when you achieve things and you go up in the world, I think it's always uh, tempting to think you know the answer. Um, but for me, I think uh, staying, staying humble throughout your career is a really you know, sage piece of advice. Sounds good. How about you? That's great. That's very good. <laughs> stolen thunder there. Um, I grew up really poor. We grew up in social housing in South London. And for the longest time, I thought my commercial success was due to me. I thought it was all about what I had achieved personally. I think now as I reach uh, the comfort of middle age and I look back on my working life, I think I was wrong completely. And those same kids who grew up next to me who ended up in prison had only really one defining factor and that was no network, no structure around them, nobody to assist uh, in, that, in that guidance. I was lucky I did have that. Poverty wasn't the defining factor, it was support, it was network. Yeah. So the one thing I would uh, tell anybody who's looking at building the most effective working career, build that network, mm. um, you know, allow yourself to be a part of a bigger picture. And uh, I'll jump on board in terms of the idea of maintaining that humility through the whole process because we got one go at this life. Uh, I think the, uh, the ability to do something good with it is really, really refreshing. Very good. Well, um, where can people find out more? Because like, um, I imagine a lot of our uh, listeners will really be interested in learning more about the, the, the scheme. So like, where can people go? Yeah, so the platform Strong Tomorrow is uh, strongtomorrow.org uh, and Code4000. Code4000.org, we sit, we sit together. The Strong Tomorrow uh, website is live, ready for, uh, for, for all and sundry to come and have a look at what we're doing. Sounds good. And, uh, you know, get in touch, let's talk. We love to talk. Everything Wonderful. starts there. And give yourself a plug. Where can people find you as an individual? Uh, Paul, please. Yeah, so P. Riseborough without the O-U-G-H on the end on uh, Twitter. Uh, Tarek at Code4000. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening and thanks to our fantastic guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to this podcast. And if you have already done so, please leave us a review. Want to find out more about 11FS? Head over to our website, 11FS.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>